Hey, video game fans, I'm Ben Bertoli. And I'm Push Dustin. And this is Memory Card. Welcome, one and all, to our magnificent fourth season. We have a lot of cool episodes in the works and some very interesting guests lined up. This first episode is actually the audio from a recent PAX Online panel that we dubbed Virtually Unplayable, the story of Virtual Boy. We'll be uploading the video version exclusively to our save file archive, which can be found on memorycardshow.com. You don't need to see the visuals to understand the story, but we did spend a lot of time on it, especially our mix master, Jamitar, who edited all the audio, video, and pictures together into one amazing presentation. Plus, the video version includes a special mini-concert by Jamitar himself at the very end, and that won't be part of this episode. That content was PAX Online exclusive, and if you didn't witness it live, you can only see it on our website. And hey, if you were cool enough to tune into this episode when it streamed during PAX Online, we'd like to thank you. Maybe this is your first time hearing an episode of Memory Card via podcast. If that's the case, you should certainly check out our backlog of episodes from the past year. There's a ton of fun topics to choose from. We'd also like to thank all of our Patreon supporters. You're all very cool and smart and very attractive gamers. Without your monthly donations, Memory Card wouldn't be what it is today. For more information on how to support the show, be sure to listen to our mid-ad and outro. That's if you want to be an attractive, tall, beautiful eye with muscles that just gleam in the sunlight gamer. Uh, push. But hey, we should probably get the show on the road. So, without further ado, here is our first official episode of our fourth season. Let's boot it up! The year is 1995. The place, Los Angeles, the city of angels. I can't keep that voice going. So it's May 11th, 1995, and this is the first ever E3 that's taking place. And this was, you know, 25 years ago. It's the 25th anniversary of the Virtual Boy, and it's also the 25th anniversary of E3, even though we didn't have one this year. Yeah. So this was kind of a big one, you know, because it was the first one. This was where the PlayStation was being revealed. There was a famous speech, I say that in quotes, given by Steve Race of SCEA, um, who came up and just said, two ninety nine, yeah. <laughs> and uh, every, everyone went wild because it was like, oh my gosh, the PlayStation's only going to cost, you know, $299. Um, it's often referred to as the price heard around the world. So mm -hmm. that's a big deal. Sega kind of just shows up and says, hey, guess what? Uh, the Sega Saturn is uh, launching today, right now. And everyone's like, oh my gosh, that's, you know, crazy. We're so surprised. And all the retail stores are like, are you kidding me? Why didn't you yeah. <laughs> tell us about this? <laughs> we need stock. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then we have Nintendo, who, you know, is obviously um, in the mix. Uh, the Super Nintendo is coming to the end of its lifespan. The, the Nintendo 64, which at that point is called the Ultra 64, is coming uh, the next year. So they're kind of in this weird in-between space. They're showing off some games like Donkey Kong Country 2 and Earthbound. And uh, they have some demos for the Nintendo 64, but their main focus mm -hmm. is on this bizarre red and black console that's supposed to fill this gap, and it is called the Virtual Boy. Doo -doo -doo. They wanted to promote it as their next big thing that's uh, hitting store shelves because they don't want people to get sucked in by Sega and uh, Sony. Yeah. This past July was the 25th anniversary for the Virtual Boy in Japan. 
and uh, this past August was the 25th anniversary for the Virtual Boy in North America. So we just missed it, but still a good time to kind of talk about it. Where did they go wrong? How did it come to be? Because a lot of people, I feel like, don't know the full story of how it, uh, it came into existence. One thing I want to touch upon that um, I feel like should be highlighted is that the Virtual Boy was never intended to be like a replacement for the Game Boy or a replacement for the N64. Right. It was supposed to be like a third like console. That, that's kind of why it, it fell into such a weird spot where Nintendo was like, don't replace your handheld and don't replace your console. Buy this other thing. <laughs> yeah, it's like its own tabletop type dealie. You have a Virtual Boy, don't you, Push? Yeah, um, I have a Virtual Boy and um, maybe like six or seven games for it. How did you come to own it? Did you buy it at launch? No, um, <laughs> I actually found it in a recycle store here in Japan. It cost about like $200 for the Virtual Boy and like five games, which was a really good deal. Uh, unfortunately, one of the eyes screens don't work, doesn't work. Mm. So um, it gives me more of a headache <laughs> than, normal. than usual when I play. Yeah, I have a Virtual Boy. I got one sitting right here behind me. My little brother actually found it at a garage sale many years ago and bought it for super cheap with a bunch of games. And I begged him and pleaded for him to, you know, give it to me, sell it to me, and he never would. And then uh, a few Christmases ago, he couldn't figure out what to get me for Christmas, and he just dumped it in a bag and said, you know what, here you go. I'm never going to use this. <laughs> so now I have a Virtual Boy of my very own. How often do you play it? Do you play it regularly? No, I would say maybe once a year I bust it out. Yeah. A lot of batteries. It's, it's quite a novelty. Yeah, it really is. And it shows up in Nintendo games from time to time. I think it was in Tamadachi Life. Uh, most recently, it was in yeah. Luigi's Mansion 3, where it was redubbed the Virtual Boo. Mm -hmm. But let's talk about the beginning of the Virtual Boy, where it came from. And before we get going, I, I want to thank Benj Edwards, who did this fantastic write-up of the history of the Virtual Boy for Fast Company. This was some time ago, a couple of years ago. But this was an incredible resource. It really helped me a lot. So a lot of the information I'm getting... Um, was from the research that he did. So thank you, Benj. It really, it all kind of started with this guy named Alan Becker. The Virtual Boy wasn't something that was concocted by Nintendo. It was technology that they, you know, kind of borrowed from someone else. I just want to say that, um, that Nintendo's like buying technology to use in their systems is not something that's uncommon. Right. And that we'll see from time to time again with Nintendo. Like um, the 3DS and the Wii, they all use technology that Nintendo had purchased that they were basically presented and they're like oh we can, can actually use this for video games and i believe the n64 as well with the silicon graphics chip is is also a similar thing yeah so it's it's not uncommon for uh, a company to sell their technology to nintendo or any or any video game company i should say yeah that's true so this guy alan becker in 1985 the legend has it that he's sitting on this cramped plane and he's thinking I wish they had a portable computer that you could, you know, mm -hmm. that would work in such a cramped space that looked good because all the laptops yeah. at the time were really low resolution. You know, they looked like blocky and they didn't last long. So it was kind of his dream. Like, I'm going to create this amazing new device that's going to look good. It's going to be small and it's going to be like really, you know, like efficient. At the time, I guess CRT technology was was it, it consumed too much power. LCD technology, at least color LCD, was just too expensive. So basically, he's like, all right, I'm going to fall back on LEDs, which are light-emitting diodes for all you nerds out there who need to know. <laughs> at that point in the mid-80s, they were pretty cheap. You could find them pretty much anywhere. 
And at that point, he had already helped produce this flatbed scanner that had also used LEDs. So he, you know, he knew a lot about them and thought that maybe he could come up with something. And uh, not too long after this moment in the airplane, he actually did come up with this display made of this single line of LEDs that could print, and I say that once again in quotes, an image onto a person's eyeball just by changing the light patterns. This new invention, it was called the Scanned Linear Array, or the SLA, because of the different kinds of LEDs that he was using. And um, once he got some investment money, he formed this company in 1986, a year later, called Reflection Technology Incorporated. What he did was, instead of shooting these beams directly into your eyeballs, which, you know, sounds like it might be a little harmful, mm -hmm. he actually shot them onto these mirrors that would oscillate, they would swivel back and forth very quickly, and it made this image look very, very crisp and clear, and it was made from these parts that were pretty cheap, yeah. even though it was a high resolution. The reason that the device that he made was in red was because red uh, LEDs at the time were the most inexpensive. They had already been used in like printer displays, you know, telling you that you have a paper jam or whatever. That was the, the cheapest thing that he could buy at the moment. So even though it was just a one inch display that he came up with that was in front of his eye, um, it simulated a 12 inch display that appeared to be 18 inches from his face. Hmm. And he called it the private eye, which is a great name. Yeah, fantastic uh, name. Yeah. I mean, have you ever seen Google Glass? Yeah. So it's essentially that, but in, you know, 1985, or it's kind of like, the power scanners in Dragon Ball Z. He thought it could be a big deal for doctors and technicians, people whose mm -hmm. uh, hands are usually busy. You know, oh, you want to look at what tool you need to get yeah. next to fix this car? Great. Or, you know, you need to see what someone's diagnosis is or what pills you need to give them. Well, you can do it hands-free with the private eye. They take this idea, they try to sell it all around the world, and everyone likes the idea, but no one actually wants to bite. They're like, wow, that's so cool. I can't believe you managed to come up with that. You know, we're definitely interested, but no one really is saying, yeah, we're going to commit um, all our time and money to making this a part of, you know, our uh, profession or our company who, you know, mm -hmm. produces other kinds of technology. So even though they were talked about in popular science and popular mechanics, um, the, you know, they were dubbed the future of technology. They just they couldn't catch a break. Yeah. So coming out of the 80s and moving to the 90s, virtual reality was really big. It was in movies, it was in video games, you know, video game graphics are getting a little bit better. Yeah. Putting something on your head and being like sucked into a virtual world was like, whoa, all the rage, you know, and basically. Like uh, Robocop. Yeah, like Robocop. <laughs> VR is all the rage and um, other companies are looking into this. And Reflection Technology says, well, if it's all the rage and we've basically invented something very similar. Why don't we try to sell it, not necessarily as a helpful medical device or something for mechanics, but as like a toy? Yeah. So they start, they make their own little demo where they just attach two of the private eyes to a welder's mask. And they had this head tracking apparatus thing that would, you know, track where your head is moving. Graphics, still pretty, you know, rudimentary. You're looking at that red on black. And they ran this tank simulation game where you looked out the window of your tank and like fired at enemy tanks that were, you know, mm -hmm. going across the desert. And they brought it to companies like Mattel, Hasbro. Once again, they got that same, oh, yeah, this is cool. This is very interesting. But they wouldn't commit to buying the technology. And then they brought it to Sega, who was also looking at VR in the mid 90s. And Sega, basically, their biggest thing was they felt like after testing it, that it would give people headaches. 
because if mm. the head tracking didn't quite line up with the visuals, it would cause some motion sickness. So that was a big concern. And they also mentioned that they were really trying to push the fact that their game gear had lots of different color when compared to the Game Boy. Yeah, I remember um, that was actually part of the promotion was like you could buy different colored game gears and stuff like that. Right. So they were all about color at that time. So yeah. they're like, we can't invest in this technology that's just two colors, red on black. Yeah. So after being rejected by Mattel and Hasbro and Sega, they decided to try their connections in Japan at Nintendo Co. Limited. Nintendo at the time, this is still the early 90s, so they're killing it with the Famicom, the Game Boy, the NES. It's been a huge success in North America. Nintendo is very much riding high. So they bring this technology to Nintendo, and Nintendo pretty much just automatically hands it over to Gunpei Yokoi, because he's kind of the guy. He's the one who invented the Game Boy. He's the one who invented the Game & Watch. He is the, the tinkerer at Nintendo who's good at these inventions. I believe he also worked on some of the toys. Yep. Yep. The Ultra Hand. Right. Yes. Very yeah. famous. It's got that crisscross look and you can reach over and, and grab things. I think um, the Ultra Hand is how he got started. He was like just manufacturing toys. And then like he made the Ultra Hand. This is at least how the story goes. Is that he made the Ultra Hand kind of like at his own time. And then that's when um, the Nintendo president, Yamauchi, came across him like while Yokoi was working the factory lines and was like, what is this? You're a genius. You're a genius. And then like kind of like promoted Yokoi. So at this point, he's actually become the head of Nintendo's internal R&D1, which is Research and Development Division. And he used calculator technology to make the game and watch. He used these non-backlit monochrome LCD for the Game Boy. Yeah. And what he's known for is this thing that's called lateral thinking with withered technology. If you've listened to our past episode where Kelsey Lewin came on to talk about the Wonderswan, yeah. she also mentioned this. And it's basically taking technology that's cheap and it's already been used for a lot of things and finding a new use for it. You can sell it, make a lot of money, and it's not going to cost you a lot of money. Kind of promotes like innovation in a way because it's like, trying to come up with new ways to use something that you've already have. And, that, and that's something that's so quintessential in Nintendo. They don't necessarily always have the most powerful system, but it always seems to be the most unique thing out there. Yeah, Nintendo definitely strives on innovation. Right. So Yokoi sees this innovative, unique tank demo that Reflection Technologies put together. And he says, oh, like, I can make something with this. You know, I can really take this technology and make something great that video game fans are going to love because he was kind of thinking that the whole video game industry was getting a little stagnant. He thought it was getting a little too hardcore. He thought there wasn't a lot of innovation going on. Yeah. And uh, honestly, at this point, he's one year away from retirement. He's 49 years old and he's told himself at 50 years old, I'm going to quit and I'm going to kind of go do my own thing in the video game industry. I won't work for Nintendo anymore. But the Virtual Boy you know, in its early mm -hmm. stage, comes across his desk and he says, eh, I'm going to put those plans on hold. And, and that fact is kind of important when we talk about after the Virtual Boy, when he does retire, because there's some rumors out there that, you know, the yeah. Virtual Boy's failure is why he did. But he was always planning on it. It just kind of uh, postponed it happening. So he really liked that there was this, this feeling of depth when you looked into the private eye or, you know, whatever you want to call the prototype at that time. Mm -hmm. And uh, he really just wanted to make this new kind of video game that didn't have borders. You know, you're looking into this abyss, basically. And he really thought that that was 
uh, something that could engross players and keep them interested. He takes it to the big boss. Reflective Technology comes in and does their whole presentation. And this is another famous you know, Nintendo legend, is that in the middle of the presentation for this technology, the Nintendo chairman, Hiroshi Yamauchi, falls asleep. Like, head on the table, he's out. <laughs> <laughs> and the people who gave the presentation afterwards are like, oh my gosh, we blew it. He was so bored, and he hated it so much that he fell asleep in the middle of this presentation. But the, the underlings at Nintendo were like, no, 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 like, that's a great sign. Basically, he was so comfortable with the idea uh... and knew that other people would take it and run with it at the company that he just decided to take a nap. I mean... I think at this time, like Yamauchi's getting close to retirement himself. Yeah, so maybe they were maybe they were just covering. No, no, he loves yeah. it. <laughs> so, but yeah, I can only imagine how they felt and the kind of flip flopping of feelings from uh, oh we blew it to oh my gosh he loves it that's great. <laughs> so, <laughs> Nintendo purchases the worldwide exclusive rights to the Private Eye for yeah. use in video games, and that was with ten million dollars in advance royalties to reflection technology which you know is a big deal for them because they're basically been looking for one big buyer and this is it they start working on the project with nintendo at reflection technology it's called the dragon project and at nintendo it's just known as vr32 so vr32 is basically just saying it's virtual reality and i say that in quotes which i've been doing a lot and 32 is for the 32 bits dragon project is definitely better yeah but what happened was, you know, you see the private eye, you're like, oh, it's, it's you know, going to be this next big thing. At least Yokoi thinks so. And he wants to make it into actual goggles. Wow. You don't need anything else. It's just the goggles. Maybe there's some kind of power pack you, you know, hook on to your belt or something like that. But it's going to be a wearable. And that was kind of what he wanted mm. the next section Nintendo items to be. It was going to be handheld items, console items, and then wearable items. But that dream of it being wearable and being goggles was kind of dashed pretty quickly because as they put the chips into the headset, they realized two things. They weren't sure if it was good to have high radio emissions near someone's head as they were playing <laughs> video games. Yeah. And also it was surprisingly loud. Mm. So they're like, okay, we have to do something to get rid of both of these problems. So they basically put all of those issues and technology inside of a metal box or they put a metal plate in there, I should say to block all of those mm. uh, potential issues. And therefore, all of a sudden, these, this, these goggles have become this headset that was so heavy that you really couldn't walk around with it. And even after mm. that, they even were saying, well, well, you know, we can find a way to balance it out. They, they were going to make these little stilts that kind of like went onto your shoulders to stabilize things. But Nintendo and Reflection Technologies both thought like this yeah. is going to be like a safety nightmare. Imagine if you're wearing these and you fall down the stairs or you walk outside and, you know, trip and fall and get hit by a car or something. Oh, yeah. So the VR32 eventually just became this bipod. You know, it had these two little legs at the bottom and you had to lean into it as opposed to wearing it around like uh, Yokoi originally wanted. The original vision of the Virtual Boy by Yokoi has kind of gone down the drain at this point. Mm -hmm. In the article that I read by, uh, by Benj, he mentioned that Yokoi was getting this feeling called the Hiri Hiri feeling. Yeah, Hiri Hiri. Hiri Hiri feeling. And it's an onomatopoeia in Japan that basically is like, 
being slowly roasted over a fire. <laughs> like, just this <laughs> uncomfortable, like, oh no, things are going wrong and I can't really fix them. You know, I can just... It's like a, uh, seeing a, a slow derailment of a train or something like that. Yeah, yeah. But he also, you know, wanted to make the Virtual Boy a success. He still thought it could be saved and that it could be a interesting addition to the Nintendo lineup. So he just uh, just kept going. And the problems just kept getting worse. Hey, listeners, we're putting this episode on pause for a bit to talk about how you can support Memory Card. Don't you dare hit that skip ahead button. We promise this won't take too long. If you enjoy the show, the easiest way to support us is by simply spreading the word. Tell your friends. Tell your family. Tell your followers. Tell that weird guy at 7-Eleven. Hey, listen! If you're less of a social butterfly, you can always leave a positive review. Or you can follow us on Twitter at MemCardShow. You can take your support to the next level by joining our community on Patreon. Memory Card patrons receive perks like early ad-free episodes, shoutouts, and early access to bonus content in our Save Files archive. Every little bit helps, so we hope you'll consider pledging a dollar or two. You can find out more on patreon.com slash memcard. That's patreon.com slash M-E-M-C-A-R-D. And now, back to the show. They eventually settled on the name Virtual Boy, which is obviously a combination of the words virtual reality and the word boy, but it gave it this comparison to the Game Boy, which was a huge success, and so everyone's thinking... This is the follow-up to the Game Boy, which wasn't what Nintendo wanted them to think. Mm. It, it was going to cause some uh, consumer confusion down the line that was definitely not going to help. Um, as they moved on, they were worried about the whole, you know, looking into this void for a long period of time and how it might affect your eyes. So they hired Dr. Eli Pelly of the Sheppens Eye Research Institute in Boston to study the effects of the Virtual Boy on normal human vision. And he basically came back and said, hey, this is fine. It's not going to really hurt you unless you're less than seven years old. Then it could potentially give you a lazy eye if your optic system is not fully developed. And so they decided, you know, we're just going to slap all of these warnings all over that says, don't play this if you're under seven years old. They put in a thing that actually would pop up when you're playing the Virtual Boy that says... You know, oh, it's been 15 minutes. Why don't you take a break? Mm. And at the same time, this is kind of like a perfect storm as far as um, warnings are concerned. There was this new Japanese law that was called the Product Liability Act that was going to come into effect on July 1st of 1995. And it basically said, if you don't warn people about the bad things that your product could do to them, they can sue you. So everybody's putting all these really weird, specific things like, don't bathe your dog in the washing machine. Like, yeah. <laughs> don't try and dry your clothes in this oven. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> they really had to double down on like all the things that could potentially go wrong with the Virtual Boy. So you got this manual that came with it. And as people started reading through it, they're like, oh gosh, like look at all these potential things that could go wrong. This system must be bad. <laughs> <laughs> it basically was just showing that it was bad for your health, even though in reality, it wasn't that bad. Mm-hmm. So, you know, things have gone poorly. The research is showing that it might be bad for younger kids. They had to change the design completely. And Nintendo is, is pushing, Yamauchi is pushing Yokoi saying, listen, we need this out, though. We need this out in 1995 because if it's not, we're going to lose those Nintendo faithfuls to the PlayStation and to the Sega Saturn. 
So, you know, he's feeling that pressure from all sides. And, uh, and then I guess uh, Nintendo stepped in and said, also, we need you to kind of de-emphasize Mario on this system. We're not going to give you a legit Mario adventure for this because that's going to be the big debut for the Nintendo 64, which is coming next year. So it was kind of like a, um, a disagreement. So, you know, Yokoi wanted to put him at the forefront of things. And Nintendo was like, no, 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 hold off on that. You know, he can't be the face of Virtual Boy because we need him for later. Yeah. So, Push, you're going to tell us a little bit about some of the, uh, the games that, that were initially uh, developed for the Virtual Boy. So, so what, were the, what were the big ones? So, in March 1995, uh, Denkiki Super Famicom Magazine, they actually stated that 70 different companies signed on to the Virtual Boy and started development. Wow. But... In the end, there's probably 15 different developers who produce games for the system, with the majority being Nintendo, T&E Soft, Hudson, and Locomotive Corporation. I thought they only made trains. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when the Virtual Boy was finally released in Japan, it released with Panic Bomber, Galactic Pinball, Mario's Tennis, Teleboxer, and Red Alarm. Hmm. Let's, let's go ahead and, talk, and quickly just talk about Mario's Tennis. When Mario's Tennis was in development, it was known as Mario's Dream Tennis. And it was actually released as a packing game for the North America market. So a lot of players were able to get their hands on it, like Duck Hunt and the NES, right? And like Tetris on the Game Boy, right? Yeah. But it wasn't packed in in Japan? It wasn't packed in in Japan. It was sold separately. Oh. In the game, pl- uh, players can pick from seven different characters. And it's pretty much bare bones in, in terms of content. Like, it's just tennis. But also Mario is there. Yeah, Mario is there, Donkey Kong Jr. is there, which is really cool. There's no power-up items, and it's just pretty basic. The effect of the, um, of the tennis ball going back and forth is pretty cool. Have you actually ever played it? Yeah, yeah, it's one of the few games that I actually own, so it's, uh, it, it's not bad. I mean, it's not the best game in the world, but... <laughs> yeah, I feel like the, the N64 version is definitely just a huge step up. Oh, yeah. And it has Waluigi in it, so come on. True, true, true. Also, it was supposed to support the link cable, but link cable got canceled, so single player only. <laughs> but there's actually that option, right? Yeah. Like when you get to the I feel like there's a screen where it says one player, two player, and if you go to two player, like you can't do anything because the cable never was released. Yeah, and it was um developed by uh, Nintendo's R and D one, who was in charge of most of the games for the Virtual Boy. That was the same one that was creating the Virtual Boy itself. Yes. And, that, and I think that's why it's one, because they do, did hardware and software. Mm. So they, one of the ideas was that they would create the tools for the hardware. Probably the next most important game to talk about is Virtual Boy Wario Land. I would say that's the most important one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I might be a little bit biased, but you know. True. It was also developed by Nintendo's R&D One, uh, with Gunpei Yokoi uh, serving as the game's designer, and Hiroji uh, Kiyotake the creator of Wario, and Hirofumi Matsuoka acting as the game's director. It's a talented team. Yeah, so you got a lot, of, a lot of cool people on the team. The gameplay is very similar to Wario Land 1, which is also known as Super Mario Land 3. And you have the different hats that you could use to power up Wario. With a Virtual Boy Wario Land, the gimmick is being able to traverse between the foreground and background to like show that death of, of the Virtual Boy. Have you ever played it? Yep, that's another one I have. I think I only have like five games, but that's uh, that that one and Mario Tennis are probably the ones that I've played the most. I own two copies of Virtual Boy Wario Land. One is like sealed and then one is loose. And unfortunately, the loose one does not work. Oh. So I've yet to play it, even though I own 
it twice. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I don't want to open the sealed one because it's like sample version. All oh, right, so it's kind of like a special edition, hard to find. Yeah, in the game, it's kind of it's kind of like the first one where Warrior's searching for treasures. Uh, in this one, he's in the Amazon River, which is the the M in Amazon being a W. Oh, I see, because it's been Warioized. Yeah, it's Warioized. Yeah. Overall, the game seems to be based off the Mario Land prototype that was shown off for the Virtual Boy, where again players could traverse between the background and foreground. The Mario Land prototype actually had a huge Wario head oh. floating around. And then, like I mentioned earlier, yeah. Nintendo stepped in and said, hey, <laughs> you can't be using Mario so much. Yeah. And so that must have been when they decided to make the jump. Because, I, I mean, like, they had a couple of other Mario types for the Virtual Boy already, like Mario Clash and Mario's Tennis. So it kind of makes sense that they would try to diversify their lineup a little bit. True. In development, the game was also known as Wario Cruise. I'm guessing that's just because of the Amazon River. Uh, the game is pretty short. I think it can be completed in like two hours or so. But that's not really a bad thing because, you know, the whole lasers in your eye. Thing. <laughs> I was going to say, I've, I don't think I've ever beat it. I've never had the, the wherewithal to stick with it that long. Yeah. And if you um, complete it quickly and, you know, get a certain amount of money and treasure and stuff like that, you can get better endings. And the best ending has a Mario on a magic carpet with a bunny girl flying off into the disc. A bunny, like a, a girl dressed yeah. as a bunny or a girl that is a bunny? A girl that's dressed as a bunny. Ah, uh, I see. Probably the, the next most noteworthy game is the Jack Bros. And um, it was developed by Atlas and it was actually a, sp a spin off title of the Megami Tensei series. Oh, I thought it was a prequel to Super Smash Bros. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it was actually the first uh, entry of the series to be released outside of Japan. Oh, really? Wait, so so it's a spinoff so of the Shin Megami cool. uh, Tensei series? Yes. Jack oh. Frost, uh, the main character in that, he uh, originated from the, that series. Oh, okay. I had no idea there was even a connection there. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the game has three Jack brothers. There's Jack Frost, Jack Lantern, and... Jack Skeleton. Really? Uh, those are the three main characters. You can also unlock a fourth character if you complete the game. Jack in the Box? No, it's actually a pixie. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> Jack Frost, Jack Lantern, and Jack Skeleton, they uh, travel to the human world for Halloween, but then they kind of lose track of time, and they have to get back to the world. So uh, Pixie shows up and shows them a shortcut. But in order to, you know, get through the shortcut, they have to traverse six areas, find all the keys and defeat the bosses and try to get to the portal in time. You know, I feel like I've seen the cover for this and it's got like those spooky guys on it. Yeah. And I, I guess I thought that those were the bad guys, not the people <laughs> that you actually play as. Yeah, it's, it's pretty fun, like um, actually going through the, um, the levels and dropping down from one platform to the next is pretty satisfying. Oh, like the 3D visuals of it all? Yeah, it's it's one of the games that I own for the Virtual Boy, and it's definitely one of the most fun games for the system. Yeah, that's, def that's not one that I own, although I wish I did now that you're describing it. Definitely, uh, if you get a chance to check it out, it's a little expensive, actually. Yeah, I think it's one of the more rare ones. Those are probably, like, three of the best games for the system. We're not going to talk about Nestor's Funky Bowling? <laughs> <laughs> the best Virtual Boy game to ever exist? Yeah, Nestor's Funky Bowling was a game developed by... R&D 3, Nintendo's R&D 3, and also uh, a US company called Sapphire, was not released in Japan. And it features the Nintendo Power character Nestor, 
And, uh, you know, he, I always wanted Nestor to bowl, and he finally got that chance with Nestor's funky bowling. <laughs> I've, I've honestly never played it, but it's just such a weird tie-in. Like, of all the characters to pull, yeah, pulling a character from Nintendo Power Magazine. Yeah, I think it, so it kind of makes sense for the hardcore Nintendo fans to be, like, excited about it. Right. And I'm sure, like, it's not something that Nintendo internally came up with. I'm sure it's, like, <laughs> something that, like, Sapphire was like, hey, Nintendo, can we do this? <laughs> can we do mario's bowling no yeah i would imagine they, they went to that list they were like mario no <laughs> luigi well <laughs> luigi no okay kirby no uh, uh fine nester yes Who? <laughs> sure take him so yeah as you can see even though there was a lot of companies that were planning on making games only 22 of them actually made it to market only so many in each region. But uh, as these are being developed, Nintendo is showing off the Virtual Boy more and more. Before E3 in 1995, they showed it to the public at the Shoshinkai Software Exhibition in Harumi, Japan. So that's the first time it's shown to the public. And everyone's just kind of like, eh, like it, it's okay. Um, when it's shown off at E3, it's kind of the same reception. People are just kind of like, well, it's got this table stand and... It's not actually virtual reality. Nintendo showed it off, obviously, at a couple more shows. In 1995, they showed it off at CES, which was in Las Vegas. And at CES, they actually shared a booth with Reflection Technology, who was showing off another one of their projects, which was called the Fax View, which was uh, kind of the same technology. You could see faxes that people had sent you, and they would appear, you know, your field of vision. In the months leading up to the Virtual Boys launch in Japan that July, there was like a media frenzy all of a sudden about the Virtual Boy and how it was like so terrible for you because I guess the media had just kind of like sensationalized the fact that it had all these warnings and it was terrible timing because yeah. you know Nintendo's trying to hype it up and then all of a sudden there's all these news stories about how it's bad for your back, it's bad for your neck, it's bad for your eyes. Why would you you know ever play this? Don't buy your child this system. Go buy a PlayStation this Christmas. It was just poorly handled, I would say. But regardless, it launches in Japan in July, and it just doesn't sell well right off the bat. Everyone is just kind of confused as to what it is and why it exists and why it looks this specific way. Two months later, Nintendo says, well, I guess we're going to try it in America. When it launched in August of 1995, it was $180, which was like three times the price of a Game Boy, and which came with a game of Tetris. So it was a, a bit of a bold move, I would say. And Nintendo, in a bigger bold move, said, we're going to sell 3 million Virtual Boy units in the first year on the market. And as you may have guessed, that uh, did not come true. Yeah. And when it did launch, Nintendo had partnered with Blockbuster, and you could go to Blockbuster and rent the system for, I think, two or three days for $10. So you could test out the system and like get super hyped about it. But this completely backfired because people started renting it realizing that it wasn't what they had hoped and then they were returning it and not actually buying a system after the fact so way to go blockbuster yeah you failed us once again thanks have you ever seen any of the virtual boy ads like the tv ads or the yeah, yeah they're kind of <laughs> weird yeah where they the virtual boy walks around yeah they kind of like had this like post-apocalyptic look to them and the people are all grungy and kind of have this like caveman feel they're jumping through all these like caves and rocks and this weird 
almost like Martian landscape. And uh, there's one that says, says, I played tennis with a toad. I was set adrift in the cosmos. I flew into the mouth of a beast. It was just another day in the third dimension. But you're right. There's an ad. There's a TV ad where there's like a virtual boy walking around and it's talking about how the virtual boy has all these things. But the one thing it doesn't have is eyeballs. And so it needs your eyeballs, (laughs) (laughs) which is like when you're going to, you know, market a video game system saying that it's going to steal your organs (laughs) is always a great. Always a good, good move. Yeah, exactly. It's a great, great idea. By December in Japan, they had only sold 140,000 units, which was like nothing hugely embarrassing for Nintendo. Yeah, I mean, just like a flop of epic proportions. And uh, Yamauchi, before the year was even over, was just like, that's it. We're done. The Virtual Boy is only going to have a lifespan of, you know, six months. It's over. Yeah. But in America, things were doing quite a bit better than they were in Japan. So they were like, okay, we're going to hold on for a while and see if this uh, can, can pick up steam. But it did not. So in May of 1996, they basically tried to relaunch the system as almost like a budget thing. They dropped the price all the way down to $99. There's a lovely ad of the Virtual Boy sitting on the beach. And it's like, you know, hey, take a vacation into the third dimension. They dropped all mention of the Virtual Boy from their marketing plans at that point. It was kind of, you know, they were just digging their own grave. Uh, Let's talk about some games that never made it to the Virtual Boy. There's a couple of games that were planned for the system's relaunch. um, Because, you know, as you mentioned in your segment, the Virtual Boy was not doing well. And so Nintendo was like, okay, we need to relaunch the system, uh, affordable price, Mm -hmm. and uh, with some cool games that are really going to get gamers moving and, and into the stores. One of those games was Bound High, which was a action puzzle game made by uh, Japan System Supply. You basically would bounce up and down on a platform. Oh. It's kind of like a breakout where you have to like kind of break the platforms, but you're also fighting enemies at the same time. Oh, okay. And did it have like a 3D, like you're jumping up towards the player kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah, I had that depth perception. Hmm. Dragon Hopper was another game that was being developed by Intelligent Systems, and it's an RPG game that was said to rival The Legend of Zelda. Really? Yeah. It was being really hyped up and everything, but unfortunately, there's no prototype of the game, and there's only a few screenshots that exist of it. That's too bad. Yeah. And probably the, the next one that's really interesting is uh, Zero Racers, which was being developed by Nintendo. With uh, Zero Racers, it was supposed to be a sequel to F-Zero. I was going to say, when I hear Zero and developed by Nintendo, that's the first thing that jumps to mind. Yeah. It was supposed to be different from F-Zero because it would allow you to go up and down uh, instead of just, you know, left and right. That kind of sounds like Star Fox. Yeah. Flying an R-Wing. kind of does. <laughs> yeah. I think at one point they even referenced it as G-Race, uh, G-Zero. Huh. Like the, in F-Zero and um, Star Fox, they have the, what, the G... G-Diffuser. Yeah, G-Diffuser. And there was a Star Fox uh, tech demo for the Virtual Boy as well. So yeah, those worlds kind of come together more often than you might think. With the game, you would be able to choose four different vehicles, which had different uh, attributes and everything. There was Falcon, Stingray, Goose, hmm. and then also a new character, Origami, which was like a, a new racer and a new uh, machine. You know who they really should have picked uh, as the fourth racer? What's that? Nestor. Oh, yeah. You know, and then it would have sold. <laughs> yeah. Then the Virtual Boy would have been saved. But there's, there's a lot of other games that were like, 
planned or talked about, like Donkey Kong's Country to D Kong's Conquest uh, port, but didn't didn't get very far into development. There's also a GoldenEye 007 game, which was a racing game for some reason. Hmm. That was being developed by Nintendo. Again, no um, actual screenshots or oh, well, only one screenshot of the game exists. Huh. So probably didn't get very far. Yeah, I can't imagine. It sounds like there was obviously a lot in the works, but since the sales took such a nosedive right off the bat, I think a lot of projects were, you know, put on hold or they were scrapped completely. So after they do the price drop, sales still don't pick back up and Nintendo's just like, okay, the Virtual Boy is over. That's it. That's the end of the Virtual Boy. Uh, Reflection Technology, who had kind of, you know, this was their one big project. They were shocked because they were under the impression that it was going very well. They had gotten, you know, dev kits and stuff to look over and they had presented things with Nintendo and it just had never materialized into anything uh, good enough to, you know, create sales. Yokoi's plan this whole time, because the Virtual Boy had shown up right when he was planning to retire, was I'm going to get the Virtual Boy out the door, it's going to be a success, and then I will move on and do my original retirement plan. But because it had been such a failure, he decided to stay on and make one more product for Nintendo to kind of redeem himself. And that product was the Game Boy Pocket, which did, you know, sell a lot better than the Virtual Boy and was kind of a revamped Game Boy. He, he ended on a good note, and then he quit Nintendo finally in 1996, on August 16th, actually. And uh, after 31 years, he left to follow his retirement dreams of opening up his own company. And that company is called Koto Laboratory, and they were the ones who made the Wonder Swan, which once again used that withered technology to you know create something that was new and fun and innovative. A lot of people thought that he quit because of the Virtual Boy, but what, like I said at the beginning, he was always going to quit. Yokoi was always on his way out the door. This was just like his last hurrah that didn't work out the way that he had hoped. Mm. And unfortunately, not long after the Wonderswan came out, Yokoi was in a traffic accident and uh, he was killed. So, you know, it's kind of that bad combination of ending on a failed product at least that the most of the world knows but his legacy nintendo you know still lives on through the game boy through the game and watch and through all of the things that he helped do and even the virtual boy itself you know miyamoto looking back on it recently said as a video game system it was a failure but if you think of it in terms of like a toy it was interesting it was fun and you know it was something that was very much of its time and in that regard it was a success. It was something new. It was something kind of daring. And, and maybe it wasn't as bad as we all remember. Yeah. The, the goal, like I said, in the first year was 3 million units. The Virtual Boy ended up selling only 770,000 units, which is, uh, is, is considered by some to be the worst selling system uh, of all time. But Nintendo purists will tell you that it doesn't count because there's one that's worse, and that would be the Nintendo 64 disk drive which only came out in Japan and sold something like 15,000 units, but that's a whole nother story. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. Our intro and outro music was crafted by talented chiptune composer Jamatar. 
You can find more of his bangin' beats by searching Jamatar, that's J-A-M-A-T-A-R, on Spotify, or visiting Jamatar.com. If you have any feedback on the podcast, or like to recommend a topic, feel free to reach out to us via Twitter, at MemCardShow, or you can visit our website, MemoryCardShow.com. If you'd like to follow Ben and I, we can be found at SuperBenTendo and at PushDustin, respectively. Have you considered supporting Memory Card on Patreon? If not, we hope you will. Currently, we're supported by quite a few awesome people, including Jackson Bertoli, Taylor Bias, Cody Sam, Michael Strickland, Tyler Davis, Courtney Cotton, Harrison, and Jose Acosta. And since our last season wrapped, we've got some new backers. I'm not sure if I can pronounce their names right, but they include Taylis, Brock Delabru, Jaehoon Jeong, Jonathan Mintz, Rob Lawler, and Andreas Cardenas. Hopefully, I got those pronunciations close to right. All of our Patreon info can be found on the support section of our website or on patreon.com slash memcard. We'll be back really soon with some gaming history goodness, so be sure to subscribe and leave a review if you enjoy the show. We'll see you soon.